Hi, my name's Manuri Ganodina, and I'm the CEO and founder of Health Match, and you're listening to Unconventional Business. Hello, everyone, and welcome to HubSpot's Unconventional Business. A show about how Australian and New Zealand brands are growing and winning by putting the customer experience first. We're talking with leaders from our best homegrown brands about their journey, the decisions they made along the way, and their biggest learnings. I'm James Gilbert. And I'm Kat Warboys, and we'll be your hosts this season. Now let's get into the show. Hi, everybody. This is James, and I'm going to be your host for this episode of Unconventional Business. Today, we've joined by an incredible guest, Manuri Gunawadina, the CEO and founder at Health Match. Welcome to the show, Manuri. Thanks for having me, James. Um, glad to be here. I'm very excited to have you. I uh, know a lot of people who work at your company and when we were talking about different companies we wanted to have on the show, I was like, oh, I think Health Match is the next huge thing that not a lot of people know about. For people who aren't as familiar with your company, how do you describe Health Match? We're a platform that helps patients connect with clinical trials and access the latest treatments. Um, and I guess our mission really is to change the way healthcare is done to make it more patient centric. You've got one of these interesting stories where you encountered the problem, like what was, and then you said about solving it. Can you talk about what that experience was like? You, I think you're on a very specific path before starting Health Match. Yeah, I mean, um, that's that's exactly right. I guess, um, you know, I was in I was in med school, um, very much focused on going down that path and becoming a clinician. And um, in my final year, I was actually working in a, a research lab on, on a brain cancer clinical trial. And that's where I actually experienced clinical trials for the first time. And, um, you know, how difficult it was for us to actually find patients for, for this trial, which, you know, if you think about brain cancer, there's no treatments that work and people are willing to travel all, the, all over the world to access the latest therapies. Um, so I think this was the first time I was like, wow, what is going on? Why is it so difficult for us as researchers to find patients and, you know, for patients to actually know what treatments are out there? And I think that's when the problem became really apparent. That would have been such a predicament for you personally, given how specific like med school is, how long you've invested in that process to then change, especially in your final year to then starting a business to solve the problem. Like, how did you think about that? I mean, it it kind of been an easy choice. Yeah, I think the thing is, I probably didn't think so much about like the the path forward and, and making that choice, because I think I was I was so ingrained in in the problem space and like, hey, brain cancer, it's kind of like there's no treatments. It's it's an interesting space. We want to find we want to find a treatment that works. And it became so apparent that like doesn't matter how good like research is. It doesn't matter how innovative drug discovery is. If you like find these amazing molecules, immunotherapies, and then you try and bring them to market, and there's no way of doing that because clinical trials are so inefficient, or the actual process of bringing a drug to market is so inefficient. So I think I got really kind of obsessed with the problem and then, you know, discovered what, um, you know, what technologies were out there that helped patients navigate or like how could you actually build something that helped patients navigate this. Started working on the problem while I was in med school and, you know, it was only, it was like a year into it that I really had to make the decision and go, all right, well, I'm starting to like, 
you know, attract investors for this. It's, it's becoming a thing. There's clearly a huge problem for patients. So, and then I was sort of made to made, make the decision whether, um, whether I defer, um, and go full time on this or, um, you know, just, just go back to sort of like, um, finishing off medicine. So it kind of like, yeah, it happened a bit organically and it wasn't really set out from the beginning, but I, I'm really glad that um, it did go the way that it did. Is it actually, it's interesting, as you describe it, I, I wonder, you're still probably solving the same problem that you set out to by on becoming a path to being a neurosurgeon. You just discovered like a more, a more efficient way to solve the problem, I guess, that rather than you as a neurosurgeon, you're like, oh, actually the system is broken in this way. And if I, if I create this platform, I'll be able to solve the system and I'll, I'm still pursuing the same impact just at a broader scale. Yeah, I think so. I think like the impact and the problem space is all very similar to like the initial problem because it's like, you know, um, in surgery and stuff, like you'd see all these really cool innovations like people you know coming up with devices that you could like insert chemotherapy into the brain and like you know see potential impact of that and and so there was all these treatments and I think yeah just knowing that they were all going to be blocked and there's no way that this stuff's ever going to actually like be commercialized and, and become standard treatment if we don't have efficient trials so um yeah that's been really exciting and I think over the course of building health match like we've realized that we now have a really good understanding of like, you know, where patients are, what, what, you know, different populations of cancer patients or different um, disease areas look like. And instead of taking an old school approach to it, we can actually take a really data driven approach and go, we know where the, we know where the demand is. We know where people are that have different conditions. So why don't we actually go after molecules or treatments that fit the population that's out there? And that's like a way of flipping you know, drug discovery on its head and like actually going, you know, data focused on, on how you do it. Okay. So when you made that choice, you're like, okay, this is the more interesting way to solve the problem, to have the greatest impact. Was that obvious to people around you? Like I imagine friends and family saw you one year away from um, finishing your studies, which is like an epic amount of study to become you know, on this path to being a neurosurgeon, which I imagine is something that people around you had expected for probably more than a decade. Did they, did friends and family understand? Did colleagues understand? Like, what was that like personally? Yeah, I think it was probably a bit of a shock to a lot of people having known the focus that I've had on sort of hitting that goal for so long. And I was so just like, that's what I want to do. And, you know, doing the research, all of those components were around like, you know, training and getting into that specialty. And so I think it was a surprise to a lot of people. And I think the other thing that was a surprise is that how is this still a problem? How is this not being solved? Like clearly, like, you know, clearly clinical trials are so pivotal to, you know, bringing treatments to market. Surely this industry that comprises of like, you know, global pharma biotech companies, someone solved this problem. It can't really be a problem. So I think they were the two elements of like, um, I guess, surprise for people. Yeah, it's interesting. I, I, and I'm positive you will know whether I'm right or wrong on this. I feel like I heard Moderna when COVID popped up actually had designed the drug within a week. Uh, like they sequenced it within like 48 hours and then because of mRNA had designed the drug within a week. 
And then that gap between one week to when they were able to release it is was all the testing and everything like that. And it's like, yeah. wow, if you look at that system, it's like, hang on, you you were able to crack the drug, presumably yeah. show it has a lot of efficacy. So we're, we seem really good on making the technologies now, but Lord, like, you know, if there was ever a time to figure out how to get it to market it you know fast it was it's been the last two years and it took yeah uh that can you talk more about that yeah and i mean like look at that like that the whole world's efforts were focused on getting you know the covid vaccine out as quickly as possible and like that still took two years and that's incredibly fast for any sort of drug to come out to market like typically it's an eight-year process and eight to ten years the more delays you have, the more like you, you lose commercial value on actually producing that treatment. Um, and we have such incredible technology, like, you know, all this like computational biology and like drug discovery. And there's just infinite amount of science out there and like treatment possibilities. And then like getting through the actual trial process is just so outdated and manual um, yeah. that these timeframes blow out. And so you've got like cancer patients or or people with chronic conditions that could have a treatment that actually works, but, you know, they either have to access it on a trial and, you know, that's the only way that they can get access to this latest technology, or they've got to wait eight years for it to, to become available. And so many of them, so many of them just don't um, because they don't either have the, the focus or the funding to be able to like make it all the way through that process and that timeline. Yeah. That's, I mean, it's so hard to comprehend, isn't it? There's like two years when everybody in the world is waiting for it, eight years normally, uh, it 100% feels like a broken system. But why is it that way? Is it that these drug companies or health uh, authorities in companies are just terrified about getting sued if something goes wrong? Or is it deeper than that? Is it actually no... You, you just need this sheer amount of time in order to have a good understanding of the drug? It's, it's, it's really surprising. Like actually a, a huge portion of that time frame is spent on recruiting and trying to find patients and, and getting the right patients in. And the reason is like if, if you look at the way clinical trials have been designed or drug companies have gone about it in the past, it's just been so not patient-focused or patient-driven. It's been like let's pull out a set of criteria that we think we need as eligibility and uh, we think the population will match this eligibility. So then we'll go out and try and find that population. And so everything's been really like not data driven, not looking at patients and the populations that exist and then hoping that a trial will, will fit sort of thing. And so, you know, that creates so much delay. And if you look at like recruitment as well, the traditional way of trying to find these patients, even if let's say, you manage to come up with the best protocol and the best eligibility. The traditional way of finding patients is like, you know, going to a clinician or going to a hospital site and hoping patients walk in and, you know, wow. the, the couple of doctors that are working there happen to mention this clinical trial. And then like, it's just like, uh, it's just so inefficient. Like that's, that's like the slowest yeah. way possible to find patients. So I think it's just the fact that clinical trials have never really put the patient at the center of like how they operate and how they're run, uh, which yeah. has really slowed down that process. I feel like in the examples that I've seen 
through friends or family, there's almost like the way it's existed is like a bit of a secret world where it's like, oh, speak to this doctor who can refer you to this specialist who can get you into this trial that's like very, very promising. And it's a very like inequitable system, but it feels like it's something that is, it's not inequitable necessarily because of like some uh, predefined exclusivity. It's inequitable because of the inefficiency is is that right? Yeah, hundred percent. I think like you know it's inequitable because you know trials are being run at certain trial sites. If you happen to go to a Peter Mac of the world, or if you happen to go to a Chris O'Brien, where you know they've got lots of major trials and they've got like top specialists that know what's happening, you as a patient will be offered that, or you need to know someone like who has like you know is in the medical system to be able to navigate that for you. And I think. You know, I've I've spoken about this example before, but, you know, the kind of final piece for me was, you know, in clinic, um, I I came across like two, like a family of a young guy. He was a 35 year old lawyer and he had a type of lung cancer and he'd made a friend similar age. She also had the same type of lung cancer. Her, Her father was a GP. He managed to like get her onto a clinical trial because he knew about them. He was able to navigate the system. And she actually went into remission and was around and the family was actually speaking about their son who'd passed away and like mm. same age, same cancer. Like obviously like you, you can't predict these things, but the fact that like one got access to a trial that worked out well for her and the other didn't yeah. even know about it. It's just like, yeah, complete inequality because of the way the system's designed. I think when people hear about these things, whenever they hear about somebody getting a problem solved, that's not like obvious to everybody. They think it's like an exclusivity, like, oh, they've got, I mean, it, it's it, it's actually semi-true, but like they've got connections, they were able to pull it off because of X, Y, Z. But, you know, often that is because of a predefined exclusivity, not a necessarily an inefficiency. This is just, it sounds like it's much later, like information isn't equally accessible for everybody. Yeah. You, it's a real like just luck of the draw if you're coming across somebody like it's I feel like people's preconception might be like oh it's like joining some exclusive club where you have to know members and everything like that but it's not yeah. that it's more the information flow is so broken that you just need yeah. to be lucky enough to come across somebody who's in the right information flow which even for them is a stroke of luck as opposed to something by design. Yeah, and then the issue is I think healthcare broadly is very paternalistic and it's like you have your clinician, they're the interface, they have all the information, they'll narrow it down for you and give you options to choose from. And that's not to say that's not the right thing to do, but even as a clinician, like when we're talking about drug discovery and your thousands of molecules and constant innovation and trying to stay on top of that and that information oh. is incredibly difficult. So you're you're kind of, um, there's no other field, there's no other aspect of your life where you've just handed over all control and that's yeah. what happens in healthcare and that's the shift that we need to make is to give patients more control around their optionality. Yeah, it's pretty wild. I've often wondered about that with GPs, just that like when you go to a GP, it, this, it seems insane that it's like, okay, this person is just going to have a sense of, 
every possible problem you can have and then every possible solution. And that human is going to be the person to match your problems with the solution where it's like, that's just not possible. And especially today where, as you said, there's so many technologies, so many solutions coming online that even problems that, you know, the GP knew were solved five years ago, there might be a way better solved now that it's just they're not in the right flow of information to be across that. And they're only human, that's fair. There's the flow of information and solutions is just probably too big, I would imagine. Exactly. And we just have to enable like, you know, clinicians are out there to do like a specific role. Like most people go through med school because they're there to help people and you just have to enable them to do that. And I think like by empowering patients, you then like are covering all bases. Like if a patient can bring a solution to a clinician and say, hey, I've, I've looked at this, I've just seen this trial, what do you think? Like that's a better outcome for everyone. It gives that clinician the chance to assess it as well and be like, yeah, actually that, you know, that suits you. Can you talk a little bit around like, where we're at in terms of medical solutions. It feels like there's a lot of technologies that have come up in the last like five to 10 years, whether it's CRISPR, mRNA, things like that, that are going to radically change the solutions that we can have in healthcare. Is that right and or not? And if it is right, like what it, it seems like when you read the hype around those technologies, it's like, wow, we'll be able to do designer drugs and you'll be able to detect things earlier and the solution side of medicine seems like it's at a real cusp of taking off like we haven't experienced in a while. Is that is that yeah. right? And then if it is, like, is it the same COVID scenario where it kind of doesn't matter if that happens if this trials phase is still broken, you know, as we've seen with COVID, yeah. the world is going to have to wait years for this stuff to come online, even though we know it works after, like, weeks. Yep, absolutely. I think like, you know, phenomenal technologies, gene therapies, like you look in the cancer space and how much is available. And the problem is we've got such a broken healthcare system. Like that is probably the biggest barrier to, to, you know, innovation in medicine, like the science bits down pat. Like, and I think my favorite quote uh, was on a, probably an Andreessen, um, Horowitz podcast. It was like, we've got a, a Star Wars um, drug discovery process and a Flintstones healthcare system, and those two things, like trying to make, trying to make, um, you know, change in healthcare, like that's where you you come across barriers. And I think one of the biggest barriers has been the fact that patients have really not been at the center of like health. And if we can really consumerize healthcare, give more um, empowerment to patients to push things through. Um, that helps accelerate a lot of like the issues that exist and the inefficiencies that exist in the system just from the lack of like resources or the way things have been like set up from the start. Yeah. And it seems like the way you're like when people see that problem, they're like, oh, healthcare, the system is somewhat broken. That seems to be a sentiment across the world to varying degrees in different countries. Um, But it's interesting. It sounds like the way you're solving the problem is not like, we're going to change the system. We're going to make it just way more efficient. Like we're going to just play into the way it works and come up with a solution that like, okay, you know, if it's going to take eight years for clinical trials to get approved and there's mass access, how do we get mass access during that eight years? And that's through making the trial phase far more efficient, opening that up to far more consumers. Is that right yeah i think it's like skipping the healthcare system as a whole like we're going 
direct to consumer, so the patient mm-hmm. at the end of the day, the demand, the people that want treatment, and then we're going to the people that are running trials and skipping everything in between. And uh, by doing that, I think you just don't have to navigate all the the hurdles that exist within the existing system. And I think one of the key things to making change is actually um, having having like knowing where the demand is and knowing where the patients are. And it's one of our you know, big drivers of focus is like go after the patients, build products for the patients. Everything is just relentless focus on patients. And yeah. when you do that, you get incredible insights, which then can inform like we can get, you know, global pharma companies to change the way that they're operating because we have like this level of insight and access to patients, which doesn't exist elsewhere. Yeah. Are, are the patients in this, are they... It's it's an interesting thing. Like, it feels like your customer is actually the drug companies, but your supply is the patients who match what they need for the trials. But that's also like the most valuable part of the equation is as if you can get as many consumers as possible who need these drugs. The drug companies to date, it's been a very very inefficient and broken process for them to get that access. But they're also, I'm guessing, are probably going to be the people who pay you as a company. So it's like they're your customer, but they're not probably your most valuable constituent. That's the consumers. That's exactly it. And it's funny because we actually swapped the way we thought about supply and demand. Like, you know, uh, originally we thought patients were the supply, but actually it's like patients are the demand. If you go after the patients and you build the pool and you sort of follow where the demand wells are, you actually change the way that supply operates. So, you know, we can can sort of be like, hey, actually there's a ton of MS patients or there's a ton of endometriosis patients. This is what they look like. These, you know, these trials are going to be incredibly efficient because we know where the population wells are. And um, that gives you you a, a lot more, I guess, leverage to be able to change the way that trials are done and research is done. And yeah, pharma companies and biotechs, they're our customers and we want to serve them and we want to make their trials more efficient. But the best way to do that is to go, where are the patients and and build sort of the biggest um, database and platform of, of patients. Um, and, you know, one day, like I think ambitions for health match could be that we're actually part of like developing these treatments because we can say this is what the lung cancer population looks like. So you should develop yeah. a drug that hits xyz um so yeah like but at the end of the day regardless it's like focus on the patients and then yeah you know, everything else follows that is a very clear where you will have value is by focusing on the patients then you'll have a real understanding of how to match them against existing solutions that are in trial that match their needs but also what are potential solutions that should be developed for that population how do drug companies do that now? Like they invest so much in solutions for potential customers. I imagine they have a very robust process around trying to find that opportunity. They do. Um, but I would say the problem is a lot of the data that they use is is pretty inefficient data. Like it's very um, confirmatory data. It's very retrospective data. It's using um, hospital records, for example, to, to try and understand um, you know, patient bases. And that's fine because you can get population insight. But the difference is, 
you then try and translate into the, into a clinical trial and you realize actually you know, the population of patients that are after clinical trials are wanting to access them might look very different. So I think, you know, for pharma companies, it's the like data-driven approach, like the real world data aspect is a bit more challenging. Like they're using data sets that aren't um, as efficient as they could be and are also like backwards looking first and confirmatory versus like, you know, actionable data sets where you can go, the, I know that there's this population of patients. I know that they're interested in a trial and this is what their like, you know, medical background looks like. And because of that, like I can set up a trial, set up the criteria and on day one, I'll, I'll know I'll have like 200 patients willing to go versus like, yep. you know, using a hospital record and, and you know, then hoping um, that you'll be able to go out to market and identify these patients or that they'll walk into clinic and, and be part of the trial. And that's where things go wrong um, in the current mm-hmm. process. And then one thing, as, as you've explained all this, it's, it seems so obvious and, and you with HealthMatch seem such a elegant, appropriate solution to the problem. But I imagine like the implementation of that, like all things, is not always as easy. Like what have been some of the bigger hurdles that HealthMatch has had to overcome? I know it's early in your journey so far, but I imagine nothing's ever smooth sailing from the get-go. Like where have you encountered resistance or what have been some of the things that have been difficult for you to solve so far? It's a like the solution itself seems very simple. I think one of the challenges from day one was like, how do we actually make it simple for patients to navigate trials, navigate criteria? So we had to build our own way of structuring trial criteria, build our own matching algorithms, continue to optimize them over time. So that piece of the product, um, you know, it's been constantly evolving over the last couple of years. And I think that's been one of the challenges. But I think the other piece is like, as as much as I said, you know, we're avoiding the healthcare system as a whole by going direct to patients, we do need to interact with it. So it's like when we when a patient has matched and applied to a trial, we then need to place them into a trial. So we've got to win trial sites and the centers that are running trials and actually be like, hey, we're health match, you know, we've got 20 patients for you for your study. And and often it's like, well, you know, what is this? Who are you? Why should we engage with you? And and that's been one of the the pieces is like, how do you win trial sites and the trust of researchers? And it's generally been like, you know, it's really just been an education piece. Like the resistance mm-hmm. Like people are usually well-intentioned and want to make their sort of research as efficient as possible, but um, we've just been building bottom-up and winning trial sites bottom-up. And, you know, across Australia, we've placed patients into the majority of trial sites across Australia. And so winning those relationships with investigators has been one of, like, the challenges. And I think in healthcare, it's always, uh, you know, you've got people that are more conservative sometimes. You've got to, like, really take them through a bit of a process to educate them. Um, and I think that's why for us, like not, not focusing too much on, um, you know, like focusing on the patient demand helps us like have the leverage to speak to investigators or speak yeah. to sites and be like, we have, like we have the patients, they've matched your trials. This is what they look like. And that's really powerful when you, when you want to win trust and, and build those relationships. Are you competing against, hospitals in that sense like i imagine hospital do hospitals get revenue from these trials that they you know as they place people into it is that who you're competing against or 
Yeah, I think in a sense, like they they do get revenue for running a trial. They do get paid by the sponsors of the trials, so pharma companies for recruiting. But the thing is, like you know, what we try and do is like show the value prop there because we're not charging the hospitals for the patients. We're placing mm-hmm. you know patients directly into those sites, um, and we're trying to show them that like you know if you can as a site can show a sponsor that you're really efficient at bringing patients in and running a trial then that's going to be beneficial for you as an investigator and as a site and one thing we've done over the last couple of years is like now built products for those sites so you know a, a, an interface where they can actually accept our patients and directly talk to our patients and bring them into their workflows and and just you know building products that make their life easier which you know that's how you continue to to win sites and get them to integrate with health match and, and not feel threatened by the fact that we're providing patients and, and seeing it as a positive and seeing as a, as a way for them to like, you know, increase like um, their yeah. reputation within, you know, running clinical trials. I'm, I'm curious, like it, your path to starting health match was very organic where you saw this problem that you'd been thinking about for a long time. And then you saw how implementation of the solution was a very broken process. And okay, if we can fix that from a child perspective, that's going to help a lot. And that insight is what led you to start. I'm curious as you've spent more time, you know, I think you're three years into growing the business around there. Do you continue to get advantages from your studies before starting health match that really give you a sense of like give you a intuition that somebody starting this without that background just wouldn't have or is that intuition really just enough to start and now you're having to learn everything new i think in terms of the problem space the background helped like understanding healthcare understanding clinician dynamics the subtleties of like hey like hematologists can be really conservative and you know different specialties might op- like those little like i guess like um insights and stuff have been really helpful like operating in the healthcare space and i think a lot of people would say like for health tech companies it's really good to like have a medical um someone with a medical background in there to be able to navigate the space so i think that that continues to like help in in scaling and product development because it like not because we build things to function necessarily within the existing um, system but we are able to make like informed decisions as to when like we want to like flip the way things are done and when it's appropriate to flip the way things are done um i think in another sense if you look at like company building or like building a startup like scaling a team like i think the one benefit coming from um a med background to like you know ha- having never really had a job before starting health match is that it was a clean slate right and it's like mm-hmm. you know i've all i have really at my sort of as resources are like books podcasts mentors and then just really like um first principles sort of thinking about problems and and actually like you know um not having preconceived ways of doing things and questioning the way things are done so i think that helps in a high growth environment to not be like, you know, bogged down with like, you know, yeah. previous ways of doing things. So I think that's like the only benefit to not having worked before. It's interesting as you as you talk about that, I almost feel like you though are in a similar position growing the business to a GP 
where there's so much information on how you could, you know, there's so much podcast, so much content, so many books, so many different opinions and, and often like contradictory opinions on what you should do growing a business. Like how have you personally filtered that and matched against like what is actually the right advice at the right time? To help you yeah yeah I think that's probably one of the hardest skill sets to develop and the most important is because everyone has an opinion and everyone has a way of doing things and I think it's just being able to synthesize information and go you know like yeah I'm going to gather all the sort of like opinions and and figure out with your own sort of intuition the way that you want to take it in the direction that you want and I think the best thing is as well is to try and surround yourself with mentors or people that have done it like a couple of head steps ahead and have that credibility. So like when you are taking those opinions, you've got people that you can actually like probably rely on a bit more in terms of like the weighting of what they're saying. Um, but yeah, I think especially at the start, I, I remember it being, you know, really a challenge to be able to like know what sort of opinion to to listen to so yeah yeah you've got to like you've got to pick wisely and and then also make some judgment calls once you've synthesized it all Yeah. yeah well I mean I think you've been doing a great job to date for people looking at health match today if they looked at it in 10 years like what do you hope it becomes over that time how would it look different like what does the long term future look like for health match yeah, I think, you know, our saying is like changing the future of medicine, right? Like we want to uh, we want to be a global company. We want it to be um, really accelerating medicine and accelerating treatments. And I think we're starting out by making clinical trials more efficient, um, but changing by changing the way that healthcare is done to put this patient at the center, I think we can really play a pivotal role in drug development. And I think as a, as a company, as we scale, that's the path to expansion. It's like, how do we now like, you know, help actually pick the molecules? How do we actually help, um, you know, drive change all the way around the whole drug development process? So um, I think that's the goal, but always keeping our North Star as like the patient and and changing the way drug discovery is done to actually suit the patient. Um, that would be, you know, where I'd love to see health match and five to 10 years time. Well, I, I mean, I am very bullish on you or I've told multiple people that I think health match is the next huge company to come out of Australia. I think you've done an amazing job so far and are building an amazing team. And you're, you're in this category of uh, business builders where I think it's like, it's, it's far more authentic. Like you discovered this problem, you've been thinking about this problem for a long time and this health match is just the way, it's the mechanism to solving the problem and it seems to be the people that have the most impact are always the people with that kind of narrative where it's like, you know, you, you're nine years into 10 years of study and you change direction because of how like meaningful this problem is. I think it's a very, very strong signal. So. Thank you so much for coming on our podcast today and talking to us about Health Match. I'm really excited to continue to watch you all do very well and for the impact you're going to have. No, thanks so much for, for having me, James. And it's been really, um, you know, exciting to be able to share a bit of the insights around like what we want to do in this space and like uh, the change that we want to make. So, um, yeah, it's been great chatting today. Thanks for tuning in to HubSpot's Unconventional Business Podcast. 
We hope you enjoyed this episode and we'd love you to subscribe and tell your friends, co-workers, you know what, tell whoever. Before we go, a shout out to our mates over at Audio Technica for bringing us today's epic sound quality. Whether you're after an awesome pair of headphones to listen to your favorite podcast on or a mic to start your own, Audio Technica has you covered. Head to audio-technica.com.au to check them out.